Good morning, everyone. Um, will you all please stand with me in honor of reading God's Word? Um, so I'm going to be reading from Proverbs chapter 7, the entire chapter. And this chapter is about uh, Solomon imploring his son to embrace wisdom, to protect him from adultery and fornication and the harlot, um, and to protect him from all the consequences of those sins. So let us hear God's word. My son, keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live, and my law as the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers, write them upon the table of thine heart. Say unto wisdom, thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. For at the window of my house I looked through my casement, and beheld, among the simple ones, I discerned among the youths, a young man, void of understanding, passing through the street near her corner, and he went the way to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night, And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot and subtle of heart. She is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now is she without, now in the streets, and lieth in wait at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day I have paid my vows. Therefore came I forth to meet thee. Diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry and carved works with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning, until us let us solace ourselves with love. For the good man is not at home. He has gone a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straight away, as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks. Till the dart strike through his liver, as a bird hasteneth to the snare, and knoweth not that it is for his life. Hearken unto me now, therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways, Go not astray in her paths, for she hath cast many down, for she has cast down many wounded, yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. James chapter two, we'll be looking at that in just a little bit. Before I get started, I want to encourage all of us uh, to continue the the love shown to Stephen and Jamie uh, in this time. Now before them, uh, praise the Lord for all the grace that He's shown to them, comforting and encouraging them uh, up to this point, but they still need us. And so let's continue the encouragement, the comfort, and the support. Uh, they do. They need our love in this time. And do pray for Zachary that the Lord would use uh, the circumstances that he's going to be facing to draw him to himself. And... He he has heard the gospel. Pray that he would remember that those seeds will take root, that they'll sprout and grow into salvation. 
We're going to be talking this morning about obedience, the way of freedom. And it's going to be a topical message as we get ready to to go into Ephesians chapter 6. Obedience, the way of freedom. Law is bondage. Sin is freedom. That's the tension we feel, don't we? Whenever we are enticed, tempted to sin. We think that freedom means having no rules. And if we're all honest, we would agree with that. that That's how we feel. We think freedom, true freedom, would be not having any rules. And and if you're not so sure that you would agree with that, just think about any time that you have sinned, that you bought into that lie, that law is bondage and sin is freedom. You see, that's your flesh's thinking. When you feel held back from what you really want to do, Maybe you explode in sinful anger. Maybe you tense up in anxious worry or you wallow in self-pity. You neglect your duties. You run in the hallway. You steal a sinful glance. You covet what someone else has. You insist on getting your way. You resist authority. Whatever it may be, you could list many more. That young fool we just read about in Proverbs 7 is every one of us, when we find ourselves enticed by sin, and we give in. We think that disobedience is the way to freedom, just as he did. He thought, okay, freedom is to be able to be with this wicked woman. Of course, he didn't think of her that way. He looked at her as just the most beautiful thing, which is exactly how we think about sin when we're enticed, right? That's the most beautiful thing to us. But we think that disobedience is the way to freedom. Laws, rules, restrictions seem to us as bondage. And it's difficult to see any law or rule as freedom. Think about just the laws that are out there. There's a part of us that just kind of bristles up when we see, you know, a speed limit sign or something. You know, it's just there's something in us because of our sin that makes us bristle toward laws and rules. But, as you've heard me say many times before, that is upside-down thinking. To think that freedom comes when there's no rules. To think that rules and laws are bondage. That's upside-down thinking. That's what the world, your flesh, they want you to think, and the devil is behind that, driving that sort of thinking. A child thinks that running in the hall is freedom, right? That's why they do it. So rules against that must be bondage, must be slavery, must be restriction. Well, I want us to study the nature of obedience... As we get ready to launch into Ephesians 6, 1, we're going to see that first phrase, children, obey your parents. But this lesson and even the ones that are going to be following in Ephesians 6 are not just for kids. Because all of us have to obey someone. And all of us have to obey God. 
This is for all of us. And we all struggle with obedience because there's not one of us that can say, I never sin anymore. That is not true. First John 1 says that would be a lie. And so if we're honest, we know that we need to understand this. We, we need to stop thinking that rules and laws restrict our freedom. Because what we're going to learn is that obedience is the way to true freedom. Obedience is the way to true freedom. Now, for us to be able to accept that proposition, that obedience is the way to true freedom, we need to look more deeply into a couple of things. First, God's law. We need to understand it rightly so that we think rightly about it. Instead of seeing it as this this body of rules that restricts us, and steals our freedom. We also need to look at obedience, the nature of obedience. What is obedience? Is it is obedience me saying, okay, you know, here, God's law, just put the shackles on me and I'll just do whatever I don't want to, but I realize that now I'm shackled. Is that the way it is? No, that is upside-down thinking. So let's first talk about our understanding of God's law. God's law comes from His love. In the Old Testament, especially we see this in Proverbs, the word for law or that is Torah, and you're familiar with that, right? The word Torah, law. But it means teaching. Okay, that's what that's what Torah means, teaching. So already it should start shifting our thinking about law. It isn't just the aspect of something, you know, this this rule that's on the books that has to be obeyed and has to be enforced. You see, it goes beyond that. Okay, it is that, but there's more to it. It's This is like what loving mothers and fathers teach their children. Again, Proverbs. And when you see, I just gave you a few verses there. Uh, we saw one of them already in chapter 7 of Proverbs, where um, the word Torah is often translated teaching, which is what it means. And this teaching is not so much... You know, math and science and reading that uh, especially a lot of moms may teach. It's, it's not so much that. It is wisdom for living life well under God. It's wisdom for living life well under God. I want you to start thinking about God's law that way. Stop seeing it as just, you know, God is this, you know, cosmic killjoy and He's just taken all the fun out of life because He set up all these rules for us. Now we can't enjoy ourselves. Don't think of the law that way. Think of it as that which comes from a loving Father who is telling us how to live life well under Him. Okay, under His authority, under His sovereignty, under He is the Creator and He has the sovereign right, the right to tell us how to live. But it isn't just that He's just kind of making up stuff because He wants to make life hard on us. Okay, we're going to see that that isn't true at all. This is the godly, the wisdom that godly parents teach their children and a godly Heavenly Father teaches His children. Um, it, it comes from His love. In Proverbs 3.11, for example, Solomon ties together, you know, God's love, discipline in His Word. Deuteronomy 4 and 7 ties together love and the commandments, God's love and the commandments. And, of course, we respond to Him in love. But this comes out of His love. 
Irish theologian Alec Motier helps us to understand this. He says, uh, well, before I get to him, law, yes, because it is law, it must be obeyed. But what Motier will tell us is that it comes from the heart of a loving father so that even his sharpest and most demanding laws are not a stern imposition by external authority, but a paternal directive arising from love. So God's law comes from His love, and we need to understand that more rightly. That's where these laws are coming from, because He loves us. We're going to develop that. Now, I mentioned uh, Alex Motier, or Motier, his commentary on the message of James has helped a lot of this these thoughts that I've been you know working on with thinking about the law and the Christian for years. And it's kind of brought some of it in this particular regard to kind of crystallize. I've been meditating on this. I know I'm strange, but I've been meditating on this for at least a couple of months on just this thought about and 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 using Matir's, uh commentary, his words on that is just excellent. And he, one of the things he he does there's a that series that that commentary is in the Bible speaks today. Um, Old and New Testament, he's the Old Testament uh, editor. And uh, John Stott was the, well, both of them was. They're both with the Lord now. Uh, John Stott was the New Testament editor. Uh, but uh, Matir spent so much time in the Old Testament, he r- wrote commentaries like on Isaiah, a uh, major commentary on that, and, and other things. But if you know James, the book of James... This is one of the first books of the Bible or the New Testament to come along. Here is the new church, and and it's very Jewish because he's writing to primarily you know Jewish Christians, and and so I think it's fitting for Montier to write on James, even though he's an Old Testament scholar. So I'm going to quote from him a good bit, and and because it's just so helpful, and he says things so well in this message. And we'll even see some more. I'll I'll pick up some more as we go through on into our study of Ephesians 6. Second thing about understanding God's law, Christ's law, and I'm making a switch there, and and I'm going to go back and forth between God's law and Christ's law. Christ's law is His gospel. You see, we we learn in in Hebrews 7.12 that when the priesthood changed from the Levites to Christ... The writer there tells us that the law changed as well. It had to. He said it was necessary for the law to change. Okay. Now, it's not like it's a completely different law, but there are aspects of it that are different, and it's a different covenant that we're under. As, as you hear you know, Kevin and I both saying often, we're no longer under the old covenant as a covenant. We're under the new covenant and the law of that new covenant. And James is going to be helpful to us in understanding this law. And and when James is talking about the law, he's not talking about the law of Moses. He's talking about, using Paul's term, Galatians 6, 2, the law of Christ. But with that, and we need to remember this, and some people will um, misunderstand, but the law of Christ brings in many of those uh, from the Old Testament uh, timeless moral requirements. You know, thou shalt not kill, and not commit adultery, and not steal, and, and as we'll see in Ephesians, you know, to honor your father and your mother, and so forth, right? 
it brings a lot of those. If they were timeless moral requirements, the new covenant brings them in. James is going to talk about this aspect or this law. He's going to call it um, the word that is Christ's commands. That he says we need to be doers of that word, not just hearers only. He's going to call it the word of truth that regenerated us and is able to save us. You see, and that's why I'm saying here that it is His gospel. Because that same word, this law of Christ, this well, He's going to call it by some different names we're going to look into. It has to do with the gospel. It's able to save. Next thing in our understanding, Christ's law is our King's desire for us. Christ's law is our King, Christ, His desire for us. James is going to use three fascinating terms to uh, modify that concept of law. He's going to use the terms perfect, royal, and the law of liberty. And, And we're going to briefly look at each of those. We'll spend most of our time on the law of liberty, which is what I'm trying to get across to us. Now, in James 2, James condemns showing partiality. And to do that, he appeals to this concept of the royal law. So look at James 2, verses 8 and 9. And we don't have time to go into all the the background and everything here, but um, he says, verse 8, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, as one of those Old Testament moral commands that's brought forward. He says that if you do that, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So what James is doing here, he's talking about this royal law, but he ties it to the Scripture. So Old Testament moral commands, if you will, um, and then the New Covenant commands that we find in the New Testament It's according to the Scripture, and it has the authority of Scripture, God's Word. But this idea of royal, and the the root word behind it for royal is the same as king and kingdom, okay? And that word is used, royal, is used in John 4 and also Acts 12 for either people or things, like clothing, for example, that belong to the king. And that's the idea behind it here. This is the law that belongs to the king. And again, thinking here of Christ, Christ our king. But it also belongs to his kingdom. So back in verse 5, he used that same word, or the, the same root, talking about that we are heirs of the kingdom. Okay, So this is the law that belongs to the king. It belongs to his kingdom. And... Matir will say that it's a special concern of our king. That's one of the reasons he calls it royal. It is of special concern to our king. Our, our king, Jesus, is concerned about this in a very special way, about these things, these his law, if you will. <clears throat> and those who are his people, us. Remember what we talked about in Ephesians 5, verse 10. What are we, what are we constantly doing? We're busy about Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. What pleases our King. You see, not what pleases me, but what pleases Him. I want to do that because I love Him. Okay, so it's a special concern to our King, but also 
of his people. <clears throat> Next. And this is, we're going to touch briefly on this, but Christ's law is the way to true freedom. And we're going to come back to this in a minute, but Christ's law is the way to true freedom. Here in James, look back at chapter 1, verse 25. He's going to use this term, law of liberty, twice. Okay, so chapter 1, verse 25, he says, in, in contrast to the person who, who you know, looks at his face in the mirror and then he just walks away and forgets, he says, but the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. So he's talking about the law of liberty. And then chapter 2, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Now, this is the more, most surprising of the three terms for him to call the law, Christ's law, the law of liberty. Because we think of liberty as the opposite of law, right? That if you have law, then you're not free. That's the way we think. And so he, But he calls it twice the law of liberty. And I'm glad he did because it helps us to say, okay, I need to figure this out because I think these two terms work against each other. They're antagonists, right? And so I need to figure this out. And when we do figure it out, then what a blessing it is. <clears throat> we think the law is binding. We think it takes away our freedom. We think it's the opposite of liberty. So, let's look into this more clearly. <clears throat> One more thing about God's law, our understanding of His law. God's law arises from His character. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. So, go way back in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 4. <clears throat> God's law arises from His character. Deuteronomy 4.12 Then Yahweh spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sounds of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. And so what He's saying there is that when God revealed Himself to you, He didn't you know, give you this, this form, which is why idolatry... It was so heinous because then you're going to take some form of something out in creation and then say, oh, that's God. And he says, he didn't reveal himself in a form to you on the mountain. He says, only a voice. So it's only words, the sound of words, he says. So God has revealed himself. That's why throughout the whole Bible, it, it, God, what the revelation of God is his word. And how closely his word is to himself. And, and of course, what is one of the names for Jesus? You think here in John 1. And the what became flesh? Word. Okay, so you see that connection there. He revealed himself in words. So verse 13, going on. So he declared to you, again verbally, his, command, his covenant which he commanded you to perform. That is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And Yahweh commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you're going over to possess it. So watch yourselves carefully. Since you did not see any form on the day Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire. And we'll stop there. But it came, God's revelation of himself came in words. And, and he, in that, coming out of his character, <clears throat> came his law. 
uh, material say that God's law is the nature of God expressed in commandments. So that's another thing to help sharpen our understanding of God's law. You see, and, and I've said this before, when we talked about law a good while back, I showed you a graph, I didn't bring it this time, but um, where the basis of all of God's laws, Old and New Testament, are is His character. They all arise from His character, every one of them, even the ones that we don't have to follow now in the Old Testament, you know, like wearing certain clothes, you know, fabrics and all that, eating certain things. But they all arise from His character. And so His nature then is expressed to us in commands. They are an expression of his character. Uh, turn now to Leviticus 19. So we're still way back here. So turn back left a little bit to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 18 and 19 spell out a variety of commands. And you'll see, they look like they're disjointed. He talks about this kind of thing, don't do that. Talks about this, do this. And something completely different, don't do that. And just all the way through it. And it's like, okay, they're not, they don't all fall into one category. But there is a phrase that, that binds them all together. There's a common phrase throughout 18 and 19. And we're just going to look at a little bit of 19. But is the phrase, I am Yahweh, or I am the Lord, your English translation may say. That connects them all. And the point is that each command arises from God's character. So first, he gives us his purpose. Look at 19.2, Leviticus 19.2, and 1 and 2. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy. Why? For I, Yahweh your God, am holy. And we find that repeated in the New Testament too, right? So, you see, that's something that is still true. The law of God in the Old Testament, the law of Christ in the New Testament, they, they, they're, they're a seamless one in a sense because they arise from His character. This is based on who He is. And He wants us to be like Him. You shall be holy for I am holy. You see, that's another reason we need to understand about His law, that why did He give it to us? Because He wants us to be like Him. He wants us to be like Him. <clears throat> and again, Matir says, the divine nature determines what shall be commanded. You see, so, like I said earlier, God isn't just making stuff up. It's like, you know... I, I want to I, I want to make life hard on them. I want to steal their joy, and so I'm just going to make up some crazy law. And no, not at all. His nature, his character determines what's going to be commanded. You see, it's like this is who I am, and this is what I want them to be. I want them to be like me. You see, and and in that we should see that this is, that's a very dear, precious thing. God wants us to be like Him. And so what God does in 18 and 19 is it so often is He ties commands to His character. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Leviticus 19. <clears throat> and watch how each of these ends. Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. Why? I am Yahweh your God. 
verse 4, do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. Why? I am Yahweh your God. And if you read on through, if you go back a little bit in 18, you read 19, you'll find over a dozen times in 19 alone, he says, okay, here, don't do this because I'm Yahweh. I'm your God. Do this. Why? Because I'm Yahweh. And he goes over and over and over again. You see, so it ties back to that, be holy for I am holy. I want you to be like me. Okay, so here are these rules that come out of my character, God is saying. Don't do this because of who I am, is what he's saying. This comes out of my character. Now, verse 37 at the end of chapter 19, kind of summarizing it. You shall thus observe all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them. Why? I am Yahweh. You see how it's tied to his character. This is where the law comes from. Old and New Testament law, this is where they they come from, from his character. And Matir will say here, The brilliance of the diamond is the perfection of the holy God himself. The whole diamond is the law. The individual facets are the commandments. So you see what he's saying there. He's like, take this this diamond, that's God's law. And each facet, you know, when you turn the diamond and you look at a little face of it, if you will, the way it's been cut, and you see the beauty of it, and each facet is a little bit different. And you turn it and you look at all these different facets. He said each one of those is one law of God's. Okay, but it's all a part of that, the brilliance of that diamond, that whole, the law of God. <clears throat> why is his law so, why does it have so much brilliance? Because it reflects his character. That's why Old Testament writers would look at his law and say, it is holy. It is good. Paul would say the same thing. You know, I mean, Paul... You know, he was at the front of the line, you know, telling us, don't look to the law for salvation. But he said, but the law is holy and righteous and good. Because you're using it wrongly is what he was trying to correct. Now, just a quick aside here. In one sense, our sin, all of our sin, is idolatry. Now, some sins, like coveting, it says there's point blank, that's idolatry. Okay? But in a sense, all of our sin is idolatry. Why? Because... What we're doing when we choose to sin is we're setting up a rival law. And thus we make ourselves into a rival God. Do you get that? What you're saying when you sin is that, God, I don't agree with your standard here. I'm not going to do your standard right now. I, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's right. My standard is what I'm following. And so what we're doing is we're setting up a rival standard and setting up ourselves as a rival God. That's why sin is so heinous. And and so, we need to understand that. You see, what we're saying is, God, I don't want your law which reflects your character. I want my law which reflects my character. That's what happens when we sin. We want our character to be the standard of right and wrong. And that's what happened with Adam and Eve. It's exactly what happened to them. They want, you know, that you will know right and wrong. What does that mean? It means that the right and wrong comes out of their heart. I set the standard. God says, don't eat from that one tree. I don't agree with that. So it's okay. I'm saying it's okay to eat from that tree. You see, they determine right and wrong. They're determining what the standard is. And we do that every time we sin. 
Now, we talked about our understanding of God's law. Let's talk now about our understanding of obedience, and let's develop that some more. So, we were created in God's image. So, originally, the law was a perfect match for us. Okay, go back to James. So, all the way to the right, nearly all the way. Go back to James chapter 1. And we'll look at verse 25. James 1.25. We looked at this already, but just once again. But one who looks intently at, and here, this word, the perfect law, the law of liberty. Okay, So he calls it the perfect law. So there's another, he called it royal. We looked at the law of liberty, another term. Now he's saying perfect, the, per, the perfect law. And let's talk about what that means. How is his law perfect? Well, material, he says this. The law of God is perfect first because it perfectly expresses his nature. We've been talking about that. Secondly, because it perfectly matches ours. In his commandments, the Lord has taken what is true about himself and has expressed that truth in a rule for us to obey. So, and we can go to the next slide. What has happened is that God created his, and his law came out of his nature. And his law is in his image. And then he created us, mankind, in his image. So originally, it was a perfect fit. And so that's why I have, you know, the two hearts are purple, purple being kind of picking on the royal. That's a, a royal color, one of the royal colors, right? But the idea of hearts is that God's law comes out of his heart. We're to love God with all our heart. You see that it's all just tied in the love and everything, right? So, but you, if you superimpose those, I just did a copy and paste, so they're exactly the same. And so they're a perfect fit. Originally, this is before the fall. Okay, so what we're saying is that originally our hearts were a perfect fit for God's law. His law is in his image. We were created in his image. And so if you superimpose it, they would be a perfect fit. Okay. Well, that yes, that was before the fall. And we can look at the next slide. When our hearts became corrupted by sin, our hearts became distorted and they're no longer or a perfect fit. You can see there's kind of a resemblance there. Sort On the right, it's sort of a heart, but it's pretty distorted, right? And if you superimpose those, they're not a perfect fit. And and that's the idea. We're, under the, when we fell, humankind fell in Adam, our hearts were no longer a perfect fit for God's law. We were no longer characterized by His holy law. Rather, we were characterized more by sin, which... John says in 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness, breaking God's law, right? It's no longer it's no longer a perfect fit. Well, is that still true of those of us who are believers? Is that picture that's up there now still us? Okay, next slide. Under the new covenant, we have been recreated in Christ. We've received new hearts. God's law is now written in our hearts. You see... It's internalized. The law now, God's law doesn't stand outside of us, imposing on us like this is what you shall do and shall not do. Now it's inside of us. It's internalized. Which part of that means that because it's a perfect fit, it's like, okay, in my new self that's been recreated in Christ. Remember, you have to think here, uh, put your think caps on back to the the flesh, you know, the the beachhead, right? Okay, so that, that part is still the broken 
distorted heart. But my new self, the new heart that I have, that I've been given under the new covenant, is now, again, a perfect fit. I want to do God's law. We've been recreated in the image of Christ, and our hearts now fit God's law once again. What does that mean for us? Motier explains, We live the truly human life when we express His likeness in our conduct. See, you get what he's saying there? We're, we're truly human only when our conduct matches His likeness in us. You see, when I, if I am recreated in the image of Christ, and I am, then... I'm truly human only when my conduct matches that, his image, which he expresses in his law, the law of Christ. When we obey, we express our true humanity as God intended it. And then Matir again, the law, which is the perfect expression of the divine nature, is also the perfect vehicle of expression for human nature. So, to obey His law is to live like Him. And again, Matir. God's law describes the life of, the true, of true freedom. It describes the life of true freedom. Obedience opens the door into the free life. There's that idea of freedom, liberty. Okay? And you're like, wow, I'm not sure I'm getting that. Okay? That law and freedom, those sound like opposites. Okay, so... Next, Christ's law is the way to true freedom. Christ's law is the way to true freedom. So now we're going to continue our discussion of that term James uses, the law of liberty. Since his law is in his image, we, and we've been recreated in Christ's image, then obedience matches our new nature. You see, so when I obey, I'm, my, my new nature is now matching... God's image revealed in the law. And whenever I sin, that is contrary to my new nature. You see? So where we think sin means freedom, no rules. I'll just do what I want. That really isn't freedom. Freedom is when I obey. Okay, we're still developing this, so hang with me. Obedience is the way of freedom because it is how we are designed to live. That's why it's freedom. It's how God designed us to live. And how we in Christ are designed to live. We are designed to be like Christ. And think here, just real quick, John 15, the vine and the branches. And Jesus is the vine, we're the branches. And what he does there, Jesus, is he ties together obedience, joy, and fruitfulness. And the point is that we experience experience true happiness, joy, and we are most fruitful when we obey His commands. That is when we are most free. That is when we are most happy. That is when we are most fruitful, when we are obeying His commands. You may find, you know, well, you know, I'm just not really that fruitful. Well, look at your life. Are you obeying His commands? Well, no, because I want freedom. Well, then you're, you're not going to be freedom. You're not going to be uh, fruitful because you're not free to be fruitful if you're living in sin. Now, turn to Galatians 5. So here, 
in the New Testament. Go back a little bit to the left. Galatians 5. What was going on here is that false teachers were telling Christians that they needed to be like Jews. And they needed to be like those Jews that would take upon themselves, upon their shoulders, the yoke of the law of Moses. Okay, so so you're like an ox, you know, and you, you, you get this yoke over your neck, and that's the law of Moses. And they say, that's a good thing, and that's what you Christians need to do. You know, it's fine if you want to have Christ, but you need this law, this yoke on your necks. And so look at what Paul, how he responds to that. Galatians 5.1 It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Okay. A lot of people look at that verse and they say, Oh great, that means I don't have to keep law anymore. God's law, Christ's law, none of it. I don't have to keep it. Is that true? Well, if you're about, does the Christian need to keep Christ's law? If your motive is to become right with Him, then yes, that's true. Okay? If your motive is to become right with Christ. Okay, Christ will finally like me and accept me and take me to heaven if I keep His law. Okay, then... You should not keep the law if that's your motive. But if we're talking about the Christian who is already right with God because he is in Christ, because he put his faith in Christ, then we would say, no, that's not true. That the Christian doesn't need to keep a, keep law. Christians are to keep the laws of Christ. Absolutely must. Okay? Look, and then Paul explains it a little bit here in verses 13 and 14. He says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. There's that term again, freedom. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what he's saying is that don't turn it into this opportunity for the flesh. You know, that's what an antinomian is. I don't have any laws now that I'm in Christ, and I don't have to obey anything. And what he's saying is, don't turn this into an op- your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh to say, I don't have to obey anybody. I don't have to obey God even. It's okay. I mean, it'd be good if I did. You know, people say that. You know, it's good if you obey, because you get more rewards, but you don't have to. You can trust in Christ, and the next ten seconds later, turn your back on Him and walk away, and you're cool. Well, that's not true at all. He says, don't turn it into an opportunity for the flesh. Not an opportunity to just go live however you want. He says, don't turn it into that. That's, that's perverting the gospel. But he says that when we love the way that Jesus taught us to love, then we fulfill all the law's commands. We, we keep them. We do them. Because that's what the law... Jesus said that. There's two things that the whole law hangs on, Jesus said. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. They hang on that. Yes, it is, imp- it is possible for a believer to still sin. I mean, we do. 
But when we sin, this opportunity of the flesh that he's talking about, that's bondage. When we sin, we give ourselves to bondage. Think Romans 6 there. We're not going to go into that, but 12 through 16. And that takes us into this next and final point. Christ's law safeguards our freedom. And hopefully it'll all kind of click for you now. It'll all come together here. Christ's law safeguards our freedom. Matthias is right when he wrote that. The law of God safeguards that liberty for us. The liberty that we have in Christ that Paul's talking about here in Galatians 5. The law of liberty that James is talking about. Think again about that young fool in Proverbs 7. He thinks it's freedom to engage in sin with that woman, that adulterous woman. He thinks, oh, this is freedom. I don't have to do, you know, mom and dad taught me not to do that. And I know the priests at the the temple say don't do that. But this is real freedom. Me going and chasing after her and, and all, you know, that is freedom, he thinks. But what a picture of bondage. That's why I wanted us to read that today. What a picture of bondage. Because Solomon says that he's like an ox that's led to slaughter. You know, oxen and and all the other animals, they don't have any concept of, you know, what's getting ready to happen here. You know, I grew up on a farm. We, we, you know, we slaughtered, you know, hundreds of thousands of animals, you know. That's what you do, you know. And, you know, uh, up until that moment, they're just like, hey, whatever, you know. They don't know what's going to, going to happen. And he said, that's how that fool is. He's just kind of, doo, 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 you know, it's like an oxen. He's been taken to the slaughter. That's bondage. He said, he's led all the way to his harm. And, and many times, his death. Because guess what? Hubby comes home. And he's not real happy about his wife being with this young man. It's an arrow through him. That's what Solomon said. Okay, you talk about bondage. Talk about slavery. I mean, he took away all of his freedoms. Because now he's dead. And and so, God's law is designed, in part, to safeguard our freedom. So, let's go to the next uh, slide. So, I'm going to illustrate for you. Uh, here's a, a path, okay? And the, the remember the, the diamond, that's God's law. And so aspects, facets of that diamond follow along the path there, safeguarding our freedom. And so you can see like the first one, don't, you know, don't commit adultery. And then after that, don't steal and so on, right? And so it's like that that path is freedom, though. That's God's path. That's the path of freedom. You stay on that law, on that that path and and walk all you want, all the way to heaven. You know, Pilgrim's Progress, right? But along the way is God's law. So whenever there's an enticement, it's standing there saying, don't do that. It's trying, because if you get off of that path, that is slavery. Let's go to the next slide. I'm going to show you that bondage here. Okay. So, and, and this is more of a, just a regular illustration. So you've got that path there, freedom, okay, and that's where freedom is, and that's the only place that freedom is. But then you've got where you're being tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil to steal. And you see there's a diamond there, God's law, standing right there on the edge of the path of freedom, saying, don't go past me here, you just keep stay on the, the path of freedom. Stay on God's path. Don't come this way, because I know what's behind me. 
There's someone enticing you to steal. Maybe it's your own flesh enticing you to steal. But you see, I've got the little shackles, the handcuffs there. Okay. And because that's what's really there. Now, sin never presents itself that way. Sin always presents itself like, oh, I'm so beautiful and you'd be so happy if you do this. You know, you really want that that iPad at the store, you know, or that new iPhone and, you know, the, the clerk's not looking and you can sneak out with that. You would be so happy with that. That's what sin does. It doesn't tell you that on the other side of that are shackles that are going to take away your freedom. We see that sort of slavery all the time in addictions, whether it's drunkenness or drugs or sexual sins like lust and pornography and immorality, or whether it's sinful anger, worry, or you name it. We see that slavery in that. Because sometimes in those extreme cases, someone who has that will, that enslavement will say, well, I just couldn't help myself. I, I, I couldn't stop. Because what they did at some point, or points really, is they said, sin, I want you and the happiness you can give me. Here, here, just take me. And sin puts those shackles on. Romans 6, don't go presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Slaves, you're saying here. And, and so those shackles get put on and those shackles get tighter and tighter. And then sometimes when you're in some of those situations... You need a brother or sister to come along and help you break that addiction. In many cases, you can, if you repent and and apply God's Word, you can break it. But sometimes you need a brother or sister to come along and help you to break that. See, God's good law seeks to protect us from these enslavements. It's not trying to take away our freedom. It's trying to safeguard our freedom. So, something I mentioned earlier, and it's a little bit, um, well, a little fun with this, but hopefully you'll get the idea. So, kids, you think that true freedom would be to run in the hall, right? You know you believe that, because some of you may have grown out of that, but at one time you believed that. Okay, so, now, the, the church here, the elders making some of the church rules here, and your parents who are trying to enforce those rules, and they maybe supplement it, we're saying that you kids have the freedom to walk down the hall to be with your friends, to go play. You have that freedom to walk down the hall. But sin tempts you and says, oh, real freedom would be to run down the hall, right? Now, you think that that's real freedom until you face plant on that hard tile, okay? Now, your freedom's gone. Why? Because you have to go to the ER, okay? So, guess what? You're not walking to your friends. You're not even running to your friends because you're going to the ER. Or, and I've seen godly moms and dads do this. Again, this is kind of setting the stage for parenting discussions we're going to have in a few weeks. You taught the children no running in the hall. And you see one of your children running. And what do many of you do? And and this is a plug for that, okay? Is you say, okay, come here, son, daughter. You're going to hold my hand until we go home. Because you disobeyed. Guess what? Your freedom's gone. 
because you don't have the freedom now to walk down the hall to your friends. You see, I know we're having a little fun with that, a little silly, but, but it's real. It's true. And, and kids, I'm not picking on you because we all are that way when we're tempted to sin. We think that sin is the real freedom. To be able to do what I want, to be able to, you know, sin with whomever I want to sin with, to take whatever I want, whatever, to to blow up whenever I want to get my way, whatever it might be, to worry, you know, this problem away. We want what we want, and we think that sin is freedom. But it's not. God's laws... And, and the laws of those that he has given that authority to, to make laws, they're to protect our freedom. And there's a great tie-in here for the Lord's table. Because I want to read something that we don't always read from 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 27. And I want you to kind of be listening for... Freedom and loss of freedom here. Okay, Why do we have the Lord's Supper? One reason is so that we would examine ourselves and deal with any sin we haven't repented of. So Paul says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, they are sinning, they have unrepentant sin, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So the point is, is that if you... You examine yourself and you say, oh, you know, I need to confess that before the Lord. Confess it and then you can partake. Okay, that's the point. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. In other words, they've died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged we're disciplined by the Lord in order that we may, we may not be condemned along with the world. This instruction here, the, this law, is designed to safeguard our freedom. Because you see, if you don't deal with your sin and you partake of the Lord's table, God says, and if you keep on in, in unrepentant sin... I might make you weak, physically, sick, and I might take you home. See, he's safeguarding our freedom to be able to continue taking communion, to continue in fellowship, to continue serving him in this life and enjoying the blessings that he gives us here. And even that extreme step of him taking people home because they they just refuse to repent. That in itself is protecting our freedom because he says that there so that you're not condemned along with the world. He says, I will take you home before I let you go so far that you spend eternity in hell. He's protecting our freedom. Our freedom to enjoy eternity with him. And so we need to take these things seriously This is from the heart of our Savior. This isn't some cosmic meanie that's just trying to make life hard on us and try to restrict everything. He said, I'm I'm trying to protect your freedom because I want you to be free to be with me forever and ever in eternity. This is the heart of our Savior who died for us. 
He wants us to experience eternal life. And He safeguards that freedom.